some pews, a piano, and stained glass? Or is it something more? 2,000 years ago, the church was born. It wasn't made up of the famous, the rich, or the powerful. It was made up of everyday people who passionately believed in the message of Jesus. It was the beginning of a revolution of love and freedom that would change the world forever. In 369 AD, the church built the first hospital as a place to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Today, the church is the largest single provider of healthcare in history. The church was the first to stand up for the rights of children, creating the first and largest orphanage system in the world. 100 out of the first 110 universities in America were founded as Christian institutions. Places like Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, and Princeton. Much of the world's greatest art, architecture, literature, and music has been shaped by the church. But the impact of the church isn't just ancient history. Today, the church is stronger than ever and continues to impact every corner of the world. Over 300,000 churches in America and almost 5 million churches around the world stand ready to be instruments of change, to do what governments could never do. Every day, the church brings food and fresh water to millions of people across the world. It has a renewed passion to help widows and orphans and fights to free slaves in every part of the world. It stands ready as a first responder on the scene to provide relief for victims of disaster. The ripple of Jesus' impact can be clearly seen and felt in the church today. And it's made up of people like me and you. Today, you didn't just come to a building. You came to a revolution 2,000 years in the making. The world is facing as much trouble as ever. But we are not afraid. We were created for such a time as this. We will continue to do what we've always done. Proclaim the message of Jesus to help a world that needs him so desperately. Welcome. 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 Welcome to church. <clears throat> so a couple weeks ago, I started this series that we're calling uh, Mega Church. How many of you ever heard that term, Mega Church? The, you know the technical definition? Any church that has an attendance of over 2,000 people is considered a mega church, and I think that's a pretty small definition for this word. So, so in the series, we're going to broaden the definition of mega church. There are some things about the church, there are some things about the story of the church that, for me, just don't add up. Um, for me, the real mystery, and I know you probably don't have time to sit around and ponder these things, but uh, you've got to get to school and work and raise kids and pay bills and stuff. And, but the real mystery for me is how in the world... Do we even know the story of Jesus? How is that even possible? And why? I mean, why is it a a Jewish carpenter who was crucified by Rome, like so many other people were, who was basically living in the armpit of the Roman Empire, Judea? Nobody wanted to even go through there. Why do we even know his name? Why is it we know this story? Roman historians never wrote about it. It wasn't significant enough for them. Jewish historians didn't write about it. Nobody important wrote about it. But somehow we have four accounts of his life. We know more. You know more about Jesus than you know about any Roman emperor. Think about that. This is absolutely unbelievable. And the question is, how do we know so much? There are a couple different ways to approach the answer to this question. Because there are historians who look for natural causes, that, which is good. That's what historians are supposed to do. And a good historian asks questions. And he asks the question, how is it that the church is so large? And how is it that a long, long time ago, a couple thousand years ago, uh, this guy named Jesus did some things, and now a third, a third of the current world's current population believes that Jesus is somehow connected to God? Those are a couple undeniable things. The church is huge around the world, and it started in the armpit of the Roman Empire in Palestine with this guy named Jesus. 
So the historian has to ask, how did this happen? How did this Jesus movement get started? How did it spread? Why did anybody pay attention? I mean, really, how in the world did his name even get out of the first century? Jesus started a movement that survived Rome. It survived and outlasted the Roman Empire. And it's taken off and has captured the attention of a third of the population of the world today. That's absolutely incredible. The only explanation that works for me is the explanation of the eyewitnesses. And this is where our story begins. The eyewitnesses say, here's exactly what happened. And a guy named Luke interviewed a bunch of people and put together an orderly account. And they called it the Book of Acts. Uh, A-C-T-S, short for Acts of the Apostles. And in this little book of the Bible, we get the eyewitness account of how the church started. And that's where we we were, where we started this thing about, I guess, what, a couple weeks ago, um, that the church started as a movement. It started with a handful of people who believed that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They believed it because they'd seen it. They live in the city outside of which walls he was actually crucified. Living in the city of Jerusalem, outside of which walls he actually rose from the dead. And they were eyewitnesses. And about two months after his resurrection, about two, only two months after he went up into the heavens, and, and that's another story that you read and you're like, what? You know, that's hard to imagine that. But these eyewitnesses are saying we saw this. But 120 of them Uh, went out into the streets of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1 and 2, and they began to proclaim that Jesus is the risen Son of God. He is the promised Messiah, the Christ. He is the Son of the living God, and he's been raised from the dead. And Luke tells us that the church got started on that day when they began to preach that message, and about 3,000 people became Christians. They didn't call them Christians yet, but about 3,000 people embraced the idea that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that even though Rome had crucified him, he had risen from the dead, not 20 years ago, not 500 miles away, not a galaxy far, far away once upon a time, but like right over there, you know, a couple hundred yards from where they were standing, because ancient Jerusalem wasn't that big. And the church was born. And it was born as a movement. There were no buildings. There were no liturgies. There was no uh, tradition. There was no order of worship. There were none of those things. There were no priests or pastors or elders or boards or committees. It was just a group of people that saw something. And they saw something incredible... And they believe something supernatural happened in their midst. And the church was born. And the reason the church survived the first century is not simply the teachings of Jesus. It survived the first century because something extraordinary happened. That single event, the resurrection of Jesus, was critical to the teaching and the belief system of the early believers. The church was a movement, a group of people. Uh, it was a movement of people, the Greek word, remember, ecclesia? And, and they had this simple, this, this church that was born as a movement had a simple mission. Our mission is that people would know that Jesus is risen from the dead, that people would embrace the teachings of Jesus. That, and they went out from their community and they began to spread this good news and it was a totally outward-focused movement. <clears throat> but you know what happened over time? The church got buildings, and the church got organized. I mean, it had to get organized. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. There began to be a hierarchy, and people got control, and then the people realized they could leverage religion to control people, and things went kind of crazy. 
And before long, the outwardly focused movement that was about passion and love and acceptance, they said, hey, we don't really care, you know, what color your skin is or where you're from or what your story is. We just want you to know that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the promised Messiah. He's risen from the dead. But before long, this outward focused movement began to turn inward. And do you know what I've learned? I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm the son of a pastor. I've been around this deal for a long time. Churches make this transition from outward focus to inward focus really, really quickly. In fact, I would say that the gravitational pull of the local church, the gravitational pull of every local church is back towards the insiders, back towards us, the church people. And churches become very, very self and inward focused very, very quickly and very, very easily. In fact, some of you have stories. Most of you have stories. Maybe you got caught up in a church split somewhere and these deacons hated these deacons, but everybody knew it was really the deacons' wives in the middle of the whole thing, but nobody would say that. There was all this mess and your parents or your grandparents or, you know, and maybe you just said, forget it, forget it. Because my pagan friends, they're they're nicer than people in this church. I don't need this. Why in the world would I waste my time with this? Maybe you've been there. So maybe you saw something in a church and maybe just bumped around and Maybe you get hurt by a church. When you think about your story, and I think about my story, and then you read Acts chapter 1, and you read Acts chapter 2, and you start reading the story of the early church, and you get into chapter 3, and the chapters we're going to look at uh, for the next few weeks, and we're like, wait, 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 when I look, at my, I look at my church experience, this doesn't look anything like local church in the first century. In the first century, they loved each other. In the first century, they shared with each other. In the first century, people from all different cultures and different backgrounds that just happened to be in Jerusalem because of a special feast, they began to take care of each other. And it seemed like the only thing that you had to believe, the only thing you had to know, the rallying point, the rallying point wasn't, you know, how you took communion. The rallying point wasn't where and how you were baptized. The rallying point wasn't, are you a member or are you an attender or you just showed up for business meetings or, or if you knew the song and what decade the song is written in. The rallying, that was not, none of that mattered. The rallying point was Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's the promised Messiah and Rome crucified him, but he rose from the dead. And it's like, high five, that's it. You know, that's all we need to know. If you believe that, then you're in. And if you don't, no problem. How can we help you believe that? Because in the meantime, while you're still making up your mind what you think about this whole Jesus thing, what can we do for you? How can we serve you? Because you're not our enemy. You're not our enemy. We're not against you. We're just so excited about something that happened that we discovered and that we experienced, and we just want you to know, but we're not going to force you to believe anything. So that was the first century church. But see, churches, we make this transition from being outsider-focused and outsider-oriented to insider-oriented. And sometimes churches, you may find this hard to believe, but sometimes churches get really, really judgmental. I know, right? Who knew? I know you've read about it. Like, I've never contributed to that mindset at all. I... <laughs> Churches get really judgmental, and as they continue to turn insider focused, they get really, really creepy. You ever been, I ever experienced something in church? I'm like, well, that was creepy. Uh, 
I'm just telling you, especially if you've been burned by a church or you're an anti-church person or you're someone who has just been burned by a church experience, I'm telling you, I just kind of want to apologize if I'm able to do that. I want to apologize on behalf of the 20th and 21st century church. Uh, we're sorry. Because when you look at the original church, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? In fact, there's, there's a verse that we'll look at in a couple of weeks that says in Jerusalem, even though there was some tension around the Jesus thing, the Christians in Jerusalem had favor with the people because there was something unusual and something unique and something remarkable and attractive about these people who followed Jesus. And consequently, the church got big quickly, but churches also turn in on themselves quickly. One of the things I love about faith community is that we started this church over 17 years ago with the idea that this church would be different from our previous experiences. It would be different from our previous church experiences and that one of the things that we set out to do was create environments where unchurched people would be comfortable coming to that. And that was part of our vision, that unchurched people would come here, wherever here was, and say, I don't totally believe that. I don't buy all that, but I like these people. I don't buy the whole thing, all the things they teach, and the whole deal with the buy. I don't know. I don't believe it all yet, or maybe I never will, but I kind of, I got, I got something out of what that guy had to say. I got something out of that small group interaction. I, I'm not sure I believe the way they believe it, but it's good for my family. The idea that people would, would come here, wherever here has been in like four different places, but they would just come and just be a part of the movement without feeling like they have to know everything from day one and be able to find their way around the Bible like some kind of a Bible scholar. But did you know that we, faith community, we are not immune from this subtle shift, this subtle turn to where it's all about us. We are not immune. And one of the ways, and, and here's where we're going this morning, one of the ways that you know, one of the ways that you know whether or not a church is still on this, our God-given mission, one of the ways you know whether a church is still on track for what God really intended when he launched the church, one of the ways we know is how a church prays. In fact, let me just sort of phrase it in a way that almost kind of rhymes, that how a church prays indicates whether it has strayed. That how a church prays indicates whether it has strayed. How a church prays, specifically how the leaders pray when they're together, how the people in the church pray when they're together, how a church prays when they're in their private prayer time, indicates whether or not the church has strayed. So here's what we're going to do. For the next few minutes, we're going to open the scripture to Acts chapter 4, and we're going to read together the first prayer that the early church ever prayed. And I think this is really remarkable that Luke researched this to the point just to get the gist of this very first prayer that the first group of believers in Jerusalem prayed, that he thought that would be important for churches on down the road to know this. So he did his homework, and this is what, this is what they discovered. Before we look at the prayer, I want to just talk to you for just a minute, just Christians in the room, okay? Um, if you're not a Christian, the great news for you uh, is that you're off the hook on this one. So just sit back, throw stones. You can judge us. It's fine. You can make notes and think, yeah, I know, put it on the internet. I don't care. But just you're off the hook because you, 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 you knew we we're all hypocrites anyway, so we're just going to confirm that. But I want to talk to Christians for just a minute. And uh, granted, that's almost everybody in the room. If you're a Christian, <clears throat> I want you to think for a minute, just think for a minute, about the prayers that you pray. Just think about the things that you pray about, okay? I know what you pray about already, but I want you to think about what you pray about before I tell you what you pray about. 
because I think we all pretty much pray about the same stuff. Here's how we pray as Christians, for the most part. There are exceptions, and you're probably the exception, but there are some highs and lows, but the average prayer, pretty much we pray for ourselves, and we pray for our family, we pray for two or three sick people, that's pretty much how we pray. I mean, isn't it true? The things we pray for ourselves are absurd when you think about it. For the most part, and there are exceptions, and I know you're the exception, but I, I'm not suggesting you stop praying anything. You're currently, that's not my point. But the stuff that we pray for the most part is stuff that, for the most part, is just going to happen anyway. It's the kind of stuff that does not tax God's energy. Okay? For example, I'm just going to pick one. God, please give us a safe trip. Okay? Make sure you're in a safe car. Fasten your seatbelt. Drive under the speed limit. Keep your eyes open. Put your phone away. Check. Do you need divine intervention? I think it's a good prayer. I pray it all the time, okay? So I'm just, you know, this is, that's just, it. but what I'm saying is God doesn't, when God hears that prayer, God give us a safe trip. I don't think he's like, whoa, dude, let me sit down because, whoa, deep breath. Uh, this is going to be a tough one. I need a safe trip because they're going to Bangor today. Uh, <laughs> and it's going to take a lot out of me. Uh, oh, God, help me do well on the test today. I know it starts in 30 seconds and I didn't do my homework, but God, please, Help me do well on this test. Atheists do well on tests, okay? This isn't some special gift from God that if God is, doesn't get all geared up, you know, that somehow he's, you're just going to bomb the test. I pray that my face clears up before this weekend. I got this date, God. God. <laughs> My personal favorite, you know what I'm going to say, don't you, some of you? Oh, God, please give me nice weather for my outdoor wedding. I pray the opposite, just to mess with you. That's why I, when I'm doing your outdoor wedding and I come in with an umbrella and rain gear, you know what's going on. <laughs> it did happen. That's true. I should have brought an umbrella that day. God, I pray that my power comes back on before the big game. <laughs> you know? Think about some of the stuff that we fill our prayers with. I mean, for the most part. Oh, and we have this horrible way of talking about prayer. And we should eliminate this from our vocabulary. Because we say to our children, did you say your prayers? That's horrible. Because you know what, that's, what that means? It means that you, you say, did you say tonight what you said last night? And what you said the night before that? And what you said the night before that? And what you said the night before that? And God, I think, is like, whoa, 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 do you need to pray that again? I heard you the first time. And I heard you last night, and I heard you the night before, and I heard you the 1,200 nights before that. Just go to bed already. <laughs> oh, God, thank you for this day. It's like, I know you're thankful for the day. You say this every day. God, thank you for this day. And I think God's like, I know you're thankful for the day, whatever that means. Tell me something new. Ask me something else. Tell, talk to me about something important in your life. It's like, I'm God. You keep asking me for stuff to, that's going to work out anyway because I created laws of science. It's just going to happen. So give me something big. 
This is how we tend to pray. And I'm not saying scrap all that you know about prayer and start over. But the thing that all of our prayers tend to have in common is that the center of our prayers is who? Us. We tend to be at the center of our prayers. And I'm just guessing, if God had answered all of your prayers this past year, this calendar year in 2014, the ones that you prayed week in and week out and day after day, and there's, that's okay, a persistence in prayer is a biblical concept. But if God answered all your prayers last year, or this, let's say this calendar year 2014, for the, most of us, the only people that would be better off would be us. Oh, maybe a family member. You'd be married, right? Or you could have never gotten married because God somehow would have reversed time just because answer your prayer. <laughs> you'd, you'd have a higher GPA. You'd have a better job. If God had answered all your prayers last year, you would be better off. And so I'm not saying quit praying all that. What I'm saying is uh, my concern is, is just as I guess as your pastor and as a Christian is that self-centered prayers, when you get them all together... After a while, we start acting like self-centered Christians. Never heard myself say that before. Self-centered prayers become self-centered Christians. And all of a sudden, this incredible church thing that Jesus came up with goes from this out, uh, outward-focused kind of thing to that insider kind of church. And when that happens, this just becomes a church building. We just become church people. We just do churchy things. And over time, we just get on each other's nerves because we become so self-centered and we go find ourselves another building that we can call our church. If you're here this morning, I know something about you, that you want to be part of something bigger than that. So churches, regardless of their size, Churches that are on God's big mission have to pray big, big prayers. So today I want to challenge you to start praying a different kind of prayer, and we're going to talk about how the early church prayed. Before we start into this, because I'm still in my introduction, I want to tell you this story, and then we're going to jump in. Here's what happened. <clears throat> 3,000 people joined the church in one day. Big launch of the church. Most successful launch of any church ever. A few days later, Peter and John are going to the temple. The temple is the epicenter of Judaism and Jewish culture. In the midst of that, of first century, uh, in the minds of first century Jews, uh, this temple is where, where God lives. So uh, Peter and John are Jews. They're going to the temple to pray. But now they're also Christians. They're followers of Jesus. So there's a little conflict going on. So they're going into the temple. And by the way, Peter and John, it's kind of like, like there was Jesus. And then when Jesus was gone, there was like Peter and John and maybe James, and there are, then, then there's the other disciples, and then there's everybody else. But at this point in the history of Christendom, Peter is the most important person. That's why you've maybe been taught that Peter was the first pope, but we'll talk about that maybe someday over coffee. So Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and they meet this guy who hasn't been able to walk since he was born. The Bible says he was lame. We don't use that word that way anymore. We, don't, we have other definitions for the word lame. But uh, so this guy can't walk and he can't and because of that he can't work a job in this culture to support himself, so he becomes a beggar. And Peter and John go by and the guy's holding out his can, he wants some money, and Peter and John are like, sorry dude, you know, like we're volunteer preachers, we don't have any money, but we have something better. Uh, we just want you to get up and walk. And this guy is miraculously healed. 
So he follows them into the temple. And I'm maybe kind of making this part up because I, I don't know the details, so I'm filling in the details. So the people in the temple, they recognize him, and they're like, you were, you, wait, you, you, wait, now you're, what is going, hey, everybody, everybody, Frank's walking. Did you see that? He's walking. Because since I was a kid, like, Frank's been sitting at the door of the temple, like, begging, and now he's walking. And suddenly there's a buzz. There's a stir. There's, there's uh, this, this riot about to break out, and all of a sudden there's all this energy and emotion in the temple. And it was one thing when Peter was wreaking havoc out on the streets with his preaching, but now he and John are creating problems in the temple. And so everybody gathers around to check this out because they've heard that Frank's walking, you know, we didn't, wow, that's amazing. He's running around, jumping up and down. He's a crazy guy now. And Peter, and he just can't help himself. He just decides to preach a sermon right there in the temple. And here's the thing, like we look at Peter as an authority because he wrote books of the Bible and he hung out with Jesus. But to the minds of the people hanging out in the temple that day, going there to pray and to sacrifice and to worship, he wasn't an authority. He had no business doing this. He was a fisherman. He preaches a sermon. In the middle of the sermon, he talks about the word that he just can't stay away from, the word resurrection, the keystone of all of his sermons. He keeps talking about the resurrection, and Luke tells us in the book of Acts that by the end of the day, by the end of, the, of his message, basically, over 5,000 men had become Christians in the city of Jerusalem. That's not including their households, so who knows? So over 3,000 people on opening day, and hundreds and hundreds of other men and women, and now we're into thousands. Now we're up to about 10% of the population of ancient Jerusalem have turned their attention toward this new, this new religion thing. And this new belief about Jesus rising from the dead. And now you got this big, big energy, and the whole thing's just big. It's mega. So the people in charge of the temple are like, okay, you cannot come in here preaching like that. Okay? Because they especially felt a little bit picked on, a little threatened, because Peter always said in his sermon, who, and you crucified him. Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you crucified him. And he said that a lot. Oh, by the way, you crucified him. I'm sure he pointed. So they arrest Peter and John, and they throw them in jail for the night. Word spreads throughout the city that the people who were, and the people who were close to Peter and John, the original Jesus posse, the ones who got this whole thing started, there are about 120 of them now uh, in, that, in that inner core. And they're like, oh, no. We got momentum. Look what's happening here. This thing is exploding. They, they've arrested Peter and John because they're thinking they arrested Jesus and they crucified him. This was just two months ago, and now they've arrested Peter and John. We may never see them again. So, of course, they're scared to death. The next morning, the authorities pull them out of jail, bring them into the leaders of the temple, and they're like, okay, so what is it? What, 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 is, what is this thing that you keep talking about? And Peter's like, well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you asked. And he launches into another sermon about Jesus being the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Uh, Rome crucified him. He rose from the dead. And uh, he concludes his sermon with his final statement in his sermon. Here, here's how he concludes. I love this. And we've quoted this verse and pulled it out of context a lot. But here's what this verse in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. This is at the end of his sermon. And in conclusion, since you asked, and in conclusion, salvation is found in no one else, talking about Jesus, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, that's narrow, isn't it? You know, it's like, it's like Peter, can you gear down a little bit? <laughs> you know, you're just always like, because what about, what, about, what about this message? Jesus was a good guy. He taught some really neat things. Moses, good guy. Oh, Abraham, good guy, you know. I mean, Peter, you know, come on. 
You back it up a little, he smells like jail, you know. He just got out of jail for saying this stuff, and he just can't help himself, and he can't shut up. And he says to his audience, the news I want you to know is this. You've asked the question, what's the deal? Here's the deal. God has done something miraculous among us. He sent his son, and we can't shut up about it. We need to embrace Jesus. There's no other name. And what's interesting, just historically, did you know that before this time and since this time, there's never been another human being whose name was declared as the means of salvation. It only happened one time. There's no other name by which we must be saved. Man, this really, this really bugs some people today, and this really bugged the leaders of the temple, the leaders of the Jewish people. But the problem was this guy who'd been healed came to this hearing. And he's standing there. Yeah, you got it. That's all he's doing. He's just standing there. Everybody knew that was a miracle. They can't exactly punish the miracle worker now, can they? So it goes on from there, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men like us, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, this is just his second day of standing, okay? So he might have been a little tipsy, I don't know. But like yesterday afternoon, I was not a standard. And and, and yesterday afternoon, I became a stander, and I'm still standing. All right, I'm making progress, you know? Uh, I don't think he even went to bed that night. He just kept walking around, running through the city probably, you know? I don't, what would you do, you know? So he's standing there with them. There was nothing they could say. So they say to Peter and John, Peter and John, okay, we're going to let you go. Hope you enjoyed our fine jail. We're going to let you go. Now just shut up. We don't want to hear it anymore. Don't come in here anymore with this ridiculous teaching. Don't talk about Jesus. Don't talk about the resurrection. Don't be blaming us for crucifying him. That makes us really uncomfortable. Just keep your mouth shut, and we're going to let you go, and we'll be fine. And Peter looks at them, fresh out of jail and says, okay, you do what you got to do, and we will do what we got to do. We cannot stop talking about what we have seen. So they take off through the streets, and they find their group, and Mary and James and Bartholomew and all the other disciples and the people that have become followers, and they get together, and everybody breathes a sigh of relief because they weren't sure if they were ever going to see Peter and John again. And Luke tells us that when they're together, they pray. And I'm going to show you the prayer in just a minute. This is where we're going. But if you can just, just imagine how you would respond to this one. Here's how I think I would, I would respond. Think about this. We, you know, you almost lost your, your, your number one guy and your number two guy. You almost lost Peter and John. They spend the night in jail. They barely escape with their lives. So what are you going to pray for? I know how we would pray because we're Americans. We would pray the kind of prayers that we always pray. We pray for protection. God, protect us. God, don't let us. God, save us. God, bless us. Keep this from us and always and never and cover us with a hedge of protection and keep us and watch over us and bless us and put a dome over us and a helmet on us would be great and a tracking device under our skin. It's all about safety and protection. God, thank you. I think what we would have said 
would have been something like, okay, guys, okay, guys, 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 look, look here's what we got to do. First, Peter and John, you are not allowed to travel anymore, okay? We can't lose both of you. You can't travel together. You can't be together. And where Peter goes, when Peter goes somewhere, John stays here. You can't travel together. Number two, we need to purchase, or perhaps lease, because we're just in, we don't have a lot of money here, maybe lease a fleet of black tricked-out Escalades, okay? And we need to get some guys with sunglasses and the little wiry things coming out of their ears, and, and we need to beef up security. Maybe we could find a used Popemobile somewhere. You know, we need to beef up security. <laughs> you, sorry. That was almost disrespectful. Because you guys are, are too important. I saw a Popemobile. Have you ever seen a Popemobile? I've seen one with my own eyes. I saw the very first Popemobile. Didn't get to ride in it, but I saw it. <laughs> oh, 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 and then number three, guys, oh, you have got to tone down the rhetoric. I mean, wow. Not very seeker sensitive. <laughs> Peter, can you preach one sermon that doesn't use the R word? Do we always have to talk about the resurrection? Let's just lay low, knock off the resurrection stuff. Jesus talked about love. John, he'd be great at this. Why don't you talk about love? You know, Peter, you can do some teaching on things like prayer and walking on water and stuff like that. That'd be awesome. Maybe you can do that thing about blessed are the peacemakers. We never knew what that meant anyway, so maybe you could teach us. And, you know, people are used to going to church and not knowing what is being talked about. So just talk about something like that. That'd be great. Just tone down the rhetoric. Let's lay low for a little while. When this thing blows over, we can ramp back up and talk about Jesus and the resurrection maybe on Easter Sunday. But please, 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 no more, no more of this, guys, because this no other name under heaven thing, I mean, that just bothers people. So let's beef up the security detail. Let's limit your traveling together, and we'll tone down the rhetoric. That's a good plan, okay, guys? Because that's how we think, isn't it? It's like, be careful. Be careful what you say and where you say it. You ready for this? Here's how they prayed. I don't know if we're ready for this. Here's how they prayed, verse 24. When they heard this, this being the report of Peter and John, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Here's the first prayer of the first century church. Sovereign Lord, they said. I love this. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, God, before we ask for anything, we just want to remind you that we know who we're talking to. This is the, this is the prayer that Jesus modeled for them. Acknowledge who it is. Declare God's greatness. Sovereign Lord, nothing's out of your control. Nothing happens without you knowing it. And the prayer goes on, verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Now they're going to quote an Old Testament passage. The passage that predicted that the Messiah would be persecuted and mistreated. So now they quote this verse because they knew the Old Testament. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord. This is an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. Against the Lord and against his anointed one. Then they bring it into their context to say that's exactly what happened. Verse 27. Indeed. Just like you said. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city. In other words, this wasn't written 1,500 years after the event. This was written a couple of months after the event in the city where this stuff happened. So they're praying. And they're going, God, you're the greatest, you're the sovereign God. You predicted these kinds of things would happen. And sure enough, they happened right here in this city that Herod and Pontius Pilate rose up against the anointed one in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Look at this next part of the prayer. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Say, like, what? Whoa, 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 where'd we go there? Huh? 
Yeah, they believe that none of these events were spiraling out of control. That somehow God, sovereign God, oversaw the crucifixion of their friend and his son. Oh, then the, that, that's heavy. Then they get to their prayer request. Check this out. Here, here's what we're going to ask for, okay? This is great because now we're getting to the gimme, gimme, gimme part. I love this. That's usually where we start. It's like, Lord, thank you for the day. Now, here's what I need. I got my list here. Thank you, God. It's great. You're great. Here's a list of stuff I need you to do for me. Here's what they asked for, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Here's the request. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Okay. Time out. Before you got, this is a good prayer so far. You're quoting scripture. You're declaring God's greatness. It's really cool, guys. But time out here because uh, boldness? You're asking for boldness? Isn't boldness what got you into this situation? Isn't boldness what created the problem? Isn't boldness what landed you in that stinky jail for the weekend? Isn't boldness what's created all the chaos out in the street and wreaked havoc in the temple? Isn't isn't boldness what created this antagonistic spirit in the city between you and the religious leaders? Isn't boldness the problem? Oh, and guys, just speaking from my 21st century perspective, you guys are pretty bold already. I mean, Peter, you you stepped right out there in the street and preached about the resurrection of Jesus. I think you got boldness covered. You're good. And they say, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Let me just ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever in your life prayed for boldness? Do you remember the last time you prayed for boldness? Is it even in our vocabulary as 21st century Christians living in America that God give us boldness, boldness to speak his word, to represent him in the marketplace, in our neighborhood, with our friends and family? We pray prayers every once in a while, you know, like, God, help her to become a Christian. Oh, God, just help him become a Christian. I'm not going to say anything, but God, I just want you to help her become a Christian, you know? Don't ask me to... mm. I'm uncomfortable. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not saying to pray for weirdness, okay? Because I know that's what you're thinking. I refuse to be one of those weirdos. Oh, a little weirdness wouldn't hurt any of us. But I'm not saying weirdness. I'm saying boldness. Do you know why the message of Jesus has made it to the 21st century? Because the first century Christians in their first prayer prayed for, and they had great boldness. And we don't even think about it for the most part. And that was the first thing they asked for. Then they asked for something even more extreme. Check this out, and this might make you uncomfortable. Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You ever ask for that? No, like, okay, now we are talking weirdness. No, 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 no. Like, I don't really go for that. I don't go to one of those churches. No. Do you know why this verse and this kind of teaching has gotten such a bad rap? I'll tell you why. And I'm not, I'm not picking on you or anybody. I'd, well, maybe I am, but I'm not picking on you. This is weird to us. 
because Christians focus on this kind of stuff in the church. But in Acts 4, what were they asking for? They were asking to be able to go out into their community among people who didn't believe, to live their lives in such a way that the people who didn't believe, who were skeptical, who had reasons to be skeptical, who had been offended and hurt, would be, see something in their community, in the, in the marketplace, in the world where they live, and go, ah, that must have been an act of God. Frank Standing, what if you began to pray your version of this prayer? God, would you please stretch out your hand and do something through me? Do something through me, not in my safe church environment, but in my secular community that I live in, among my unbelieving friends, among my anti-church friends and family, among my friends who've been burned by religion, among my friends who are so smart I can't convince them with my power. God, would you be willing to stretch out your hand and do something unusual, not for my benefit and not in the church, but for the benefit of those who don't believe? That's different. And I think this is important, especially if you're new to Bible study. All the miracles, you know those miracles, you know, like, like Frank there getting jumping up and down in the temple? They weren't for the sake of the people that the miracles were performed on. The lame guy that was healed, right? You know what? You know what? He died. All the people who were healed eventually died. Even the people who, were, who, who Jesus, and they brought back to life, eventually died. The whole point of healing in the New Testament wasn't just for the sake of the people who were healed. I mean, it was a good day for them. Okay, that was, that was a good day for them. They were happy about it, and they rejoiced, and they gave God glory. But the point of the miracles was so that people would go, whoa, 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 tell me more. That was the point. You've, you've never run into anyone from the first century who can't die, right? You're like, you run into them at the store, and you're like, man, Peter healed me, and I can't get sick, and I can't die. You know, I've been around a couple thousand years now. The point of this wasn't some weird, mysterious, spooky, you know, the pastor laid his hand on somebody in a church service and everybody was singing and chanting all kinds of things, and it's a miracle. That's not what this is. They're asking to be able to go out into their community, demonstrate the power of God, not for their sake, but for the sake of what God was doing through the church. Whew, let me just ask you this. Can you... Um, can you begin to imagine what would happen in our church and in churches in our community? Can you imagine what would happen if the Christians in our churches began to add to, and I'm not saying subtract from your prayers, pray everything you've been praying, that's fine, God doesn't mind, but begin to add to our prayers. God, you know, thank you for this day, help me on this test, pray that my face won't break out and I'll get married someday and I'll get a better job, maybe win the lottery. Not the whole thing, but a couple hundred thousand would be great and it'll be nice on the weekend and, and I'm not done, God. Would you give me boldness with my friends? Holidays are coming up, God. I got to hang out with some of my family. They don't believe, I know, but I'm talking about family who are far from God. Would you give me boldness with my family? God, would you give me boldness to see that, so that I would just see opportunities, that I would take those opportunities? 
Because I'm not a bold person, God. I'm not wired that way. But God, would you give me boldness? Would you stretch out your hand? Would you do something through my sphere and in my sphere of influence that would possibly get my friends who have just written you off and written the church off? Would you do something through me that would get them to possibly give you another look and give you a second chance? Can you imagine what would happen if we began to pray prayers like that? I have an idea what would happen. You will see more opportunities to take advantage of. Because God made you that way. God designed you to see what you're looking for. That's just human nature. You see what you're looking for. So when you begin to pray, you know, God, make me bolder. God, get, It's like you ever prayed for patience? Mm-hmm. Same, same concept. God, make me bolder. God, give me opportunities. God, stretch out your hand. You are going to see things that you haven't seen before, and you are going, perhaps God's going to do some things that God would not have done otherwise through you. Here's how the story wraps up. After they prayed, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I don't know what that means. Was there an earthquake? The building shook? The people shook? I don't know. The place was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. How? Boldly. Then Luke, who's writing all this down, he's like, oh, yeah, I've got to tell you this, this one better part, and I don't understand this, and I don't understand the connection, but the very next verse, Luke says this. This is pretty interesting. Verse 32. And all the believers were one in heart and mind. Don't find that very much. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. <laughs> Suddenly, along with this, this newfound boldness, there was an outbreak of extreme generosity. Not because of a sermon, not because of a financial campaign, not because uh, somebody said, well, if you give one, God will give ten more. None of that nonsense. There was was nothing. It was just as they became outsider-focused, as they began to talk about the resurrection, there was an outbreak of generosity. So here's the deal. We've got a pretty good thing going on here, faith community. We're a pretty healthy church. It was nice last weekend to have some outside perspective on that. Believe it or not, we're, we're in a growth mode right now. We're slowly, steadily adding people. And our music is awesome. And the kids' ministries are full of energy. And they're teaching the Bible. It's just incredible. Our congregation is younger than the average congregation in this area. The teaching, well, it's off the charts. Uh, we're, we're in a good... All in favor? We're in a good... I know, which chart? Which uh, We're in a good position financially. We've got a great workable facility. We're coming off this weekend, last weekend with, with, with Pastor B, a whole weekend where we talked about the vision for this church and we dreamed big dreams and we talked about the future and we started to craft a plan to guide us to move forward and things are good. But none of that is why we're doing this. I want us to be a healthy church, but not just so that we can be a healthy church. We want us to be a bigger church not than we are right now, not just so we can be a bigger church. We mostly want to be a church that prays big prayers. We want this to be a church that learns by God's grace to leverage our growth and our influence for the sake of something that has nothing to do with us. I think you're good at that. I think that's been your track record over the years. But here's what I know about us, because we're a church, that what starts like this over time starts to do this. 
And the way that you pray and the way that I pray and the way that we pray when we're together is an indication of where our hearts are. The way we pray is often an indication of if if we're still on track with God's mission and God's plan for the church and our community and our friends and our coworkers, or if gradually that this is becoming, you know, like it is for so many Christians and for so many churches, that this maybe is becoming a little bit too much for us. So here's what I want to do during this series. This is part two. We're going to stay here for a few more weeks. Um, We'll get to an end at some point. But here's what I want you to do. I'm just asking you to add to your prayers. God, make me bolder. God, give me boldness. And God, and this part kind of freaks me out, but God, stretch out your hand. If you could do something in my life and through my life that would cause people around me to be open to you, then God, I'm available. I surrender to you. I want to be on your mission. I want to be part of the movement. I want to be part of the... I'm the church in my city and in my community and in my world. You know what I think? I'm confident that God will answer that prayer. Here's what we're going to do to close the service. Because remember, we started with music already, so we're going to close here in just a minute. If you're not a religious person, if you're not a Christian, you don't really buy into a lot of this. Somebody tricked you into coming today. I apologize. They promised you lunch or something. Uh, Or said you'd meet someone cute. Again, I apologize. (laughs) That was rude. (laughs) If you're not a religious person or not a Christian, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. Um... A few minutes ago, we read this verse in Acts 4 where Peter said salvation is found in no one else, talking about Jesus, that salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So right now, if if you're on the outside looking in, I want to give you a chance to have a moment in time where you just transfer your trust in your ability, uh, you know, to be good enough to somehow make it to heaven to, you know, good luck with that, to to transfer that to where you trust in the death of Christ as the payment for your sin and his resurrection as the bridge to a relationship with your heavenly father. So I'm going to do this because I think it's important to have a moment in time, a date and place that you can look back on and and years from now and, and look back and say, yeah, I remember that. I remember that day. I remember the people around me. I remember. So I want to give you a chance to say that I'm making the decision today to transfer my trust from my efforts to be good enough to somehow be in good standing with God. I'm transferring all my trust to the fact that Jesus did all this for me. I'm no longer going to trust in my ability, my efforts to be a good standing, in good standing with God. From here on out, my trust is in the fact that Jesus has been the sacrifice for me. I'm fully trusting in him as the basis for my right standing with God. So if you're at that point where you'd like to do that, I'd like you to join me in a prayer. And we don't do this much, but you, you can change the words. You can pray it with your eyes open, your eyes closed. You can stand, you can sit, you can whatever. You can kneel, doesn't matter. I want to just give you an opportunity to have a moment in time that you can look back on and say, that was the day. That was the day I made this decision. I made that transition from trusting in myself to fully trusting in Christ. So while we're quiet here for just a minute, just in your heart, would you just pray with me something like this? Just say, Heavenly Father, I believe. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is the Savior. I believe he came to be my Savior. I believe that when he died, he died for my sin. I believe that I can have a right standing with you through what he did. So today I'm placing all of my trust on Christ's death on the cross as a full payment for my sin. Thank you, God, for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. 
Thank you for leading me on this path to believing in your son. Now listen, this is really important. If you prayed this prayer with me just now, would you do this? Would you just come see me after the service when we close here in just a couple minutes? Because I'm going to be right here at the front and I would love to celebrate this milestone with you. In a moment, you can look up. In a moment, um, I'm going to have us all stand. And I don't, I don't usually do this kind of stuff. I'm doing two things today I never do, maybe three. I'm going to have you stand together and we're going to close the service and we're going to read this prayer. You don't have to read it. Okay, I'm not forcing you, manipulating you. We're a big enough crowd that if you don't want to do it, no one's going to notice. But if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're an active part of this church family, then you have to play. Those are the rules, okay? <laughs> Here, here's why. Because I don't want you to miss this. Listen, listen. You are a Christian today because the first century church prayed bold prayers. I'm telling you, your prayers and my prayers would never have gotten the gospel story out of the first century. Because our prayers are just, protect me, help me, bless me, don't let me skin my knee, in Jesus' name, amen. That's how we pray. We're Americans. We're just safety conscious. We are. I'm afraid that if it had been up to us, we, we would never have prayed the gospel out of the first century. But that can change. Because listen, you are responsible, I am responsible in this generation to hand the church off in good shape on mission to the next generation. So I invite you to stand with me if you're comfortable doing that. Well, even if you're not comfortable, but you have this idea of boldness, you're like, okay, let's go there. So I invite you to stand with me. We're going to read this together. We're going to read it as our own prayer. Then we're going to leave. And I'm not going even going to, be, we're not going to be dismissed. We're just going to leave this place and go be the church out there. Okay. So here we go. Here's the prayer. Ready? Enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders. In the name of Jesus Christ. Did that feel a little weird? We're going to do it one more time because if you're like me, you don't like to go. Just go along with the guy up front unless you know where he's going. So now that you know where we're going... I encourage you and invite you to participate, okay? And uh, we're, we're going to pray this together one more time. This is our corporate prayer as a church, and it's your individual prayer as a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. We're going to sing a song. We're going to play a song. I encourage you to sing along. Crank up the volume, Mark. We won't be afraid of volume on this song. Uh, this, is, uh, and this is how we're going to leave. Build your kingdom here. Come set your rule and in our hearts again, increase in us we pray, unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wild.